Bruce Cook is honored to have you join his conversations with people committed to talking with heart and brain functions in full operating gear. No spin, no agenda, just authentic conversation on just about anything. Welcome to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Bruce thinks the odds on this show are great. From the blackjack tables in the casinos to the highest trader floor on Wall Street, the life of Indian immigrant Kamal Gupta is the stuff of a great Hollywood movie. The Bruce Cook Conversation with your host, Bruce Cook. Trending now, here's your host, Bruce Cook. Brought to you by the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook, and this is the Bruce Cook Conversation Sunday night. Tonight, Super Bowl is going on all across America. We're going to sort of take a sidestep from the game, talk about aspects that tie in a little bit. Let me start by saying you probably all have read or heard that some $8 billion, with a B, dollars has been placed in uh, betting facilities all across America on this event. Some 35 to 40 million estimated Americans have contributed contributed to this $8 billion fund at Super Bowl. And that does not include the millions of people in offices sitting on their couch at home eating Doritos who betting amongst one another. What am I saying? Gambling is a big part of our life. Where are we going with this? Wait till you find out. What an amazing hour we've got. I'm honored to have you listening. Stay tuned because you're not going to believe everything you're going to hear. Let me move from the gambling aspect that I just introduced to what's been happening on Wall Street over the last couple of weeks, actually the last few years. But in the last couple of weeks, you've seen swings of upwards of 1,000 points on the Dow. And then down 900 points, and then back 500 points, and then to the side 300 points. Wall Street is ever-evolving and ever-changing. There's so much market volatility, and the philosophy of investing in Wall Street has changed quite a bit over the last decade or two. We're going to tie this all together. Wall Street, gambling, and believe it or not, Another aspect, and that is the American dream, ladies and gentlemen. If you're watching or listening to football while you're listening to this radio broadcast, which is very possible because we all do multiple tasking in this lifetime that we're in, this technological lifetime, you will probably be thinking about the aspect of football being an American dream The fact that these players who start as kids and go through elementary, high school, college, the numbers are fractional that make it to the pros. And perhaps that is an aspect of why America has become so crazed with the sport of football and, of course, the event of the Super Bowl. But let me digress from that back to the American dream concept. Like Wall Street, like sporting, like everything in our life, that American dream has also changed a lot in the last decade or two or three. 
I ask a question of listeners. Think about this. What does it mean to you? Did the American dream make a difference in your life? And, and what do you think about it today? All right. I've said too much, but I wanted to start the show by bringing out all of these different aspects on this night. And the reason is I have an amazing guest to introduce you to. He's coming in live from New York. And he is an Indian-born uh, man. His name is Kamul Gupta. And he is from New Delhi, India, originally. But he's been in America for, I believe, more than the last 30 years. And he came to this country as an American dreamer. He came to this country as an educated man in engineering, looking for what would be his American dream. How would he realize it? And where would it take him? And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to bring him on the show tonight, and we are going to enjoy a journey together that you will not believe. So, Kamul, are you with me? Um, hi, Bruce. How are you? I'm doing well tonight. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Let me, let me share with our listeners here in Southern California that I came to know of you because of a book that you've written. It's called Play It Right. And we're going to talk about Play It Right, ladies and gentlemen, with Kamul. But, but most importantly, you're not going to believe this story. It, it basically lives up to the cliche adage that man makes plans, but God laughs. Because here's a man, Kamul, you're a man who was educated, you had a dream, you had a plan, and boy, talk about left turns and, and learning lessons in life. Let me ask you to begin with, share a little bit of the beginning of your story. Why did you come to America? What, 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 was the, what were the elements of that dream to begin with? But don't give away the good stuff that's to come. Um, very good. Just one quick note, Bruce. Uh, the pronunciation of my name is Kamal. Uh, it's slightly different from Kamal. So it's so say it one more time so I don't mess it up. Kamal. It's it's Kamal. Kamal. Is that right? That's right. Kamal. Okay. Yeah. We don't we don't like to mess up people's names. Um, yeah, it's a, the problem is Hindi doesn't have any accent on syllables, so it's like every word is pronounced flat. Kamal. Kamal. Well, you know, I started off calling you uh, something totally different. And uh, I got a note just before the show with the uh, uh, pronunciation of your name, and I still got it wrong. So I apologize. <laughs> right. I apologize. No, no, no worries. You Tell know, me about set. your early days. So um, I graduated with an electrical engineering degree in India. And um, by the time I finished with that degree, I was, I was done with electrical engineering. I decided that that was not my future. So I applied to graduate schools in America um, to study computer science. And I came to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I finished a very quick master's there. And by the time I did that, I realized that computers were not it for me either. I had what no was the year, Kamal? It was, I came to America in 85, and I finished my master's in 86. Now, you've just established that you are a man of many talents, but maybe an impatient man of many talents. 
That's true. And the reason why I came to America in the first place um, is, you know, growing up in the India of the 70s and 80s and looking at America through the lens of TV shows and movies, you know, America seemed like this mythical place where anything was possible, um, that all you had to do was to work hard and, you know, you could attain a decent standard of living. And um, India was very different back then. And more than anything else, America was the land of possibilities. I sort of felt like I could go there and do anything. And, and at least in my case, um, as you well know, that, that reputation that America has has turned out to be absolutely true. And so I, when I finished with my undergrad degree, I started working for um, a few computer corporations like Honeywell and then Oracle. And I was really dissatisfied with my, with my life. And I just did not see my future in computer programming. And um, on a ski trip to, Las, to uh, Lake Tahoe, I discovered the game of blackjack. And I dev- devoted the next two and change years of my life playing blackjack. Before we, into- Kamal, before we get into that, you're in your book, Play It Right, when you're talking about your time at Oracle in the Bay Area, you write, and I'm not quoting, I'm going from memory, that you were so bored and so disenchanted that it was torture getting up and getting yourself ready to go to the office. Why was it so torturous? Because it was... I mean, if you don't have any interest in the basic function of your job, which is writing software, you know, I'd graduated with a master's in computer science, and, you know, my supposed expertise was in writing code. And I just didn't like it. I just didn't see a future. I mean, I couldn't imagine spending the next 20, 30 years of my life doing this. And so, so I'm, That's all right. You can obviously hear very well because I'm just before I'm about to say something, I don't want to, I don't want to cut you off. Anyway... You segued into the fact that on a, a trip to Lake Tahoe to the casinos, blackjack appeared. This is what I'm talking about of quixotic things in life. But what was what was the great appeal? Was it the fact that because you had a mathematical mind, you were good at it and you made money at it? What what was what was so great about sitting in a casino playing blackjack? Um, actually, before I started playing blackjack, I was very negatively predisposed towards gambling because I had been in casinos once or twice before. Um, and I was, it was apparent to me that everything in the casino, from the chandelier down to the carpets, was paid for by the losses of the gamblers. And there is no way these large buildings would be standing if people didn't lose millions or billions of dollars to them. So I had no interest in gambling or playing any of these games. It's just that, you know, I saw this game of blackjack, watched a friend play a few hands, and the game was devastatingly simple. Get as close to 21 as possible without going over. Um, But even that, I mean, that slightly piqued my interest. But more than that, when I found out that the game can be mathematically beaten and that if you count cards, you can actually turn the odds in your favor, that's when I was hooked. And the other reason I decided to go down the path of professional gambling is because um, I read a few books. Uh, the main uh, one of those was Million Dollar Blackjack by Ken you know, legendary card counter Ken Houston. Yeah. And I was outraged by the fact that casinos, they set up the game. Um, they tell you the rules by which you should play. And they kick you out if you have the audacity of using your brain while playing the game. And Ken Houston was not only thrown out of casinos, which, you know, a fate that I suffered myself a few times, 
but he was also, you know, beaten and arrested for doing, you know, for counting cards, which, you know, I thought that was terribly unfair. Um, so I said, you know, I'm going to do something about it, and I'm going to try and separate the casinos from at least a little bit of their cash. And so between, you know, I, I had a penchant for taking calculated risks. Um, I had, you know, math was my favorite subject, you know, in, in high school and college. And then this element of unfairness, all these three things came together, and I decided to go down this path, you know. You spent then the how many? Of everyone. You spent, uh, was it two years? Was it that you spent really? A little over two years, yeah. Really perfecting your game. How come you never got bored doing that? I didn't because, um, for one simple reason, um, I realized, I mean, it took some time for me to start winning steadily because the first few trips were, as you might expect, disastrous. The reason I never got bored is because it was an incredibly powerful feeling that I go to the casinos, play for two, three, four days, and that there's an 80% probability that I would walk out with more money than I walked in with. And that was an immensely, you know, you know, uh, driving force in, in, in playing the game. And I just loved the whole aspect of, um, there's a cloak and dagger aspect to it, whereas how do you avoid getting kicked out? So there's a game within the game. There's the game of blackjack, which involves math and probability and numbers and betting and bankroll and stakes. Then there is a whole other game that you're playing with the casino, which is how do you not get found out and tossed out of the casino for counting cards? And all and how often did you get found out? I was tossed out um, for the first few months of my playing. I mean, my play wasn't even good enough to get tossed out. But in the, in the last one year, I got tossed out four times. May I ask what kind of money you made in those two years at Blackjack? You don't specify that in your book. I don't, um, for good reason. And I'd like to plead the fifth on that. The way I would phrase the profitability of the game is this. Um, Let's say my average bet, you know, when I, by the time I quit gambling, and, and we haven't gotten to the reason why I quit gambling yet, we'll come to that. But in my last few months of betting, my average bet was roughly 100 to $125 a hand. And generally in, in the game of blackjack, you can play something like 80 or $100, 80 or 100 hands per hour. So the total amount bet during the course of an hour, comes out to be roughly ten thousand dollars, like one hundred twenty-five multiplied by eighty hands. It's significant, uh, which is significant. You, you, and the the edge a card counter, at least the way I was playing the game, you know, you can maybe get a, roughly a one percent edge over the house. And when I kept detailed records, I found that that was roughly the edge I had gained uh, over the house. Now think about this: a, a ten thousand dollars bet every hour, one percent of that is hundred dollars an hour. So I was effectively making $100 an hour. Um, and you can just multiply by that by as many hours you know, as I wanted to put in, and that becomes my return. Good answer. Where does, this, where does this stand in terms of my intro about tying this all into the American dream? At this point in your life, two years, learning to be a, a professional gambler, where's the American dream in all this? The American dream that brought you here from... Uh, <clears throat> from Delhi and from Electronics University? Well, the American dream is being on the Bruce Cook show. But ah. I digress. You know, so. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a but, good but answer. Clearly, it's not, we're not here no, but solely this is, because of Blackjack. You yes. know? <laughs> well, listen, at that point, 
I, what else can I do but say it's time to take a quick break? Uh, Kamal, it's really, uh, really fun having you on tonight. We've got so much more to learn. And audience listening, you won't believe where we're going with this. This is only scratching the surface. So don't go away. This is the Bruce Cook Conversation, and we will all be back shortly. Hi, this is Cam Fowler, and you're listening to Ducks Radio AM 830. At the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, the Hogue Epilepsy Program is accredited by the National Association of Epilepsy Centers as a Level 4 Epilepsy Center. This means that our experts provide the highest level care for patients with complex epilepsy. Our patient-centered approach to epilepsy treatment combined with state-of-the-art technology, including robotics and laser ablation, ensure the best possible outcomes for our patients. To learn more or for an evaluation, call 949-966-0243 or visit hogue.org forward slash epilepsy care. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Bruce Cook. It's the Bruce Cook Conversation tonight. My very special guest from the East Coast Live, Kamal Gupta. We are talking about his amazing book, Play It Right, which is a journey of his life path. If you're just tuning in, we have discussed some beginning uh, times uh, when he came from New Delhi, India, and has how his life progressed through the computer world and Oracle and other places in in uh, California and and Minnesota and uh, into the idea that he learned how to become a world-class blackjack uh, player. Kamal, before I, we move on from this, I have to ask you, what's your take on the idea that so much, such a huge amount of money Eight, uh, supposedly about $8 billion is on the line tonight with the football game that is going on as we talk. Um, well, needless to say, I'm not against gambling, per se, because uh, blackjack, you know, as we'll discover later in the conversation, completely changes my life. Uh, while I'm not against gambling, I am against three things. One is gambling when the odds are against you and the greater the odds are against you the more i'm against it um if you look at any average super bowl bet the house stake is roughly five percent which doesn't seem like a lot if you only place one or two bets a year but that brings me to my second objection with gambling is i'm i'm very against uncontrolled gambling and finally i'm very much against children gambling so this this concept of house edge uncontrolled gambling and kids gambling all of this um, comes together in online sports betting, which, you know, in New York State was legalized just last month, you know, just in time for Super Bowl. And um, the problem with online sports betting, at least at home, is that it makes it so much easier for the fraction of population that is susceptible to problematic gambling to make bets from home. And it also opens the door to children having access to, you know, computers from which they can place bets. It also is uh, a very dangerous path for people that mostly can't afford to go down. 
That's true. So this 5% advantage, I mean, it doesn't seem like a lot. And yes, it's it's not at nowhere near as bad as Lotto is because in Lotto, they take roughly 33 cents of every dollar. So the house take is roughly 33%. And it sort of becomes a regressive tax on the people who can least afford it. And I don't know how we conflated school funding with lottery revenue, but that's the state of affairs today. Um, at least with casinos and online sports betting, it's pure profit is the motive. Well, let's take that let's take that stance to segue into the next step in your life, if I may introduce it, and then I want you to take it from me. I am fascinated by the fact, as you describe in your book, play it right that you used your talent as a consummate jack, uh, blackjack player to land a job at Lehman Brothers in New York. An unheard of story. Share it with the audience. Right. That's the opening chapter of the book um, where, um, I mean, I just a, a random trip to New York in fall of 1992 made me come across a few people who worked on Wall Street and it was their idea that I should come and work here. And I, I, just like I never had any interest in gambling before I started playing blackjack, I had almost taken an oath that I would never work on Wall Street or live in New York City. Um, well, you have three things you, in the book. There's three things you said you'd never do. Those are that's two. That's right. What was the, the third? Is, I will never work on Wall Street. I will never live in New York City. And the third one, um, I will never marry a non-Indian. Okay, and we're going to find out if all of those are true later, but go ahead. So, um, but when I went back to San Francisco, which is where I was living while playing blackjack, um, I began to think about, you know, Wall Street after reading Liar's Poker, and, and it sort of felt like a natural transition for me to go from the largest casinos of Nevada to the largest casino in the world. Um, and I sort of put together a resume and sent it to a couple of investment banks, and you know, a couple of them agreed to interview me. One said that we have no idea, you know, what your skills are. Next was Lehman Brothers, and I had an interview where all day long I was grilled on blackjack. And finally, I was asked to count a deck of cards in under 18 seconds, which I could do at the time. Um, and when when I was able to get the card right, um, you know, in front of a group of people. Um, then I was offered a job literally on the spot. Unheard of. But then again, I guess I could blame you in part for the fall of Lehman Brothers. <laughs> I left Lehman three and a half yeah, years I, later. I know you did, <laughs> I left but I'm still, gonna, so. I'm still blaming you. Uh, <laughs> you write in the book, gambling and Wall Street share a common trait. The possibility of success in each case is small. Talk to me. Right. So... It's one thing to mathematically understand how you can beat the house in blackjack. It's an entirely another thing to do it, and to do it successfully, and to do it over and over, especially without getting kicked out. So taking money out of a casino is an extremely difficult undertaking, and I think very few people have been able to do it successfully for any sustained period of time. The same is true on Wall Street. I mean, uh, if you play the game, you know, you so you surrender the odds to the house, and you surrender the odds to Wall Street as well. So you have to, you need a, an investment strategy which overcomes those odds, whether it's card counting or the methodology that are developed in the U.S. mortgage market. And I really believe in hindsight, um, the odds of being able to get through all of these situations 
were really slim. And I, I didn't think of it when I was going into it, but in hindsight, I mean, when I reflect and think about, you know, what I was able to do on Wall Street, I could never have expected to be able to pull that off going in. Um, to It's beating markets, beating the markets on a sustained basis, month after month, year after year, it's an extremely difficult undertaking. Just like beating the casinos day after day is extremely difficult. Let me Let me take you from the point that you impressed the the higher ups at Lehman Brothers and one of the top guys Michael Gelband took you under wing hired you because of that became a multi-decade relationship hot and cold but 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 certainly mentorship and friendship were involved yes um but what happens next is you are the low guy on the totem pole, and you are treated like dirt and have the most horrific experiences dealing with the competitive shark tank that is Wall Street, or was at that time, especially since this was part of that long-term, well, it was almost 20 years, ending in the mortgage crisis and the fall in, in, in 2008. Very, very turbulent times. Share as much as you can. There is one story in particular that is that is most colorful, and perhaps you can you can dive into that without being too graphic. It's difficult to do that, but um, do, I describe a lot of bad behavior that goes on, that went on at Lehman in the early, 90, early and mid-90s. But to be clear, I was not the only one who was subjected to this. I mean, that was the standard, you know, those were the rules. Um, it was... Trading on Wall Street was, and maybe to some extent still is, was an apprenticeship program. There were no books you could read. The only way you could learn was from watching you know, other traders or your superiors at work. And um, the culture of the place was that they extracted their pound of flesh. You know, the most innocent form of that was you know, getting, fetching breakfast you know, for everyone on the desk when you don't know anything, which is something I did for months. And, um, you know, the harsh reality of that was sometimes just objected to, you know, all sorts of, you know, in my case, the, the colorful story that you're referring to is my being subjected to anti-gay slurs simply because I'd moved here from San Francisco. Um, which which and, you have to explain is you're, you are not gay and it is ridiculous that this was happening. You could, and you couldn't stop it. It wasn't. And, and again, it was also, it was, and it wasn't, and it also wasn't that it was, uh, how shall I say this? You had no uh, angst or prejudice against gay people. It was just no. just weird. It was just plain weird. It's just, I mean, this is the way the place was at the time. And, um, and it's, I mean, lots of people went through this. And, um, and I recount my experiences about what happened to me. Um, but it was my, the treatment that I suffered was not, out of the norm. It was fairly standard for people to, for stuff, maybe it was a little extreme, but again, um, it was fairly standard operating procedure in Wall Street of the early 90s, especially on bond trading desks. I mean, liar spoker scratches the surface of this in the mid to late 80s, but I think, I mean, I wasn't around until, I mean, I came to Wall Street in 1993, so I can only describe what I saw then. And, um, yeah, it was a pretty brutal culture, and it, it, it became so bad that after two years of working in the business, in the spring of 1995, I left thinking that I was done with, with finance and Wall Street and, and that I had no interest in, in a business 
that operated in such a manner, you know, on a personal and a professional level. And I actually took three and a half months off, uh, which is an unheard of thing, you know, when you're a bond trader at Lehman Brothers, which is like, and, and especially in the mortgage market, which is what I was, you know, at the time, it was probably the pinnacle of Wall Street to be trading mortgages at Lehman Brothers in the mid-90s. And yet I walked away from it because I just couldn't take it. I didn't like my life. I didn't like my job. I didn't like the product that I was trading. And I just couldn't see myself continuing um, either on the desk or in the business. I'm um, going to try I'm going to try and describe what happened to you with this one particular trader who was a superior of yours without being too graphic and feel free <laughs> feel free to jump in because it's a fascinating story. It's something that couldn't happen today or it, it shouldn't it happen it shouldn't have happened then and it shouldn't happen now, but let me let me try. I didn't rehearse this, so I'll do the best I can. There was a, a gentleman who was very gruff and very much your superior as you were just starting out who would bark orders at you and would also hurl these homophobic slurs at you and proposition you. And he would proposition you very graphically in front of others all the time, and you just took it. You took it for months and months and months, and finally you decided this is never going to end, this is never going to stop unless I challenge him and accept the proposition publicly in the middle of the trading floor and make him face the music. Can you take it from there without being specific? Well, I basically, I mean, he was obviously bluffing, and I called his bluff. But you also and, took a huge risk in doing that. You could have been oh, fired. Yeah. Your career could have been over before it started. Well, yeah, but the thing is, it, it, that wasn't as big of a risk as it seems like because, I mean, I frankly hated my life. So if I got fired, so be it. I mean, taking on a superior is never, you know, uh, a riskless thing to do. But I did it thinking I was willing to face the music if I got fired for, you know, going down this path and showing him up. And so be it. So you basically said, okay, I take you up on your proposition. Let's do it right now. Let's do it right here in the middle of the office, and we're going to do it. And you're going to get what you've asked for. And the rest is your history. And the entire trading floor is staring in disbelief, but they know what's going on. But it but in the end, in the end, apparently, there was some respect. It it uh, it stopped. The harassment stopped. Yeah, I mean, there's only one way. I mean, when you're getting bullied and harassed, I mean, one day you just have to take it on. I mean, and there's no other way to make it stop. And the irony is, you know, despite everything that happened, you know, between us, you know, 15 odd years later, we kind of become friends, which is, you know, mind boggling in itself. Well, you write in your book that the guy lost his job with the fall of Lehman Brothers and you helped him or at least tried to help him. Put his life so he back lost together. a job at the crisis, but he wasn't at Lehman at the time. Oh, he wasn't. Okay. I'm so, sorry. But I he did lose his job in the that. crisis, and I tried to help him as much as I can in looking for employment at a hedge fund, which is where I had been working for quite some time. But, okay. Um, so, I mean, it was stuff like this, the, the personal and the professional, that made me walk away from Wall Street in 1995, thinking that, you know, I'm never going to go back. Okay, well, we're going to explore that. We're also going to find out about that third axiom in your never do this and never do that, because apparently uh, the axiom about never marrying um, a non-Indian has to be discussed and dissected on our show tonight. 
We're going to take our second break, Kamal. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, stay with us. You're going to learn a lot more. You can kiss my... Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue is ranked in the top 1% in the nation by U.S. News & World Report. It provides world-class care through multidisciplinary expert teams, each focusing on specific disorders of the brain and spine, such as stroke, aneurysms, brain tumors, Parkinson's disease, cognitive disorders including Alzheimer's, epilepsy, back pain, as well as spinal cord issues, addiction medicine, and sleep disorders. Our renowned experts offer the best evidence-based care, state-of-the-art technology, and the latest clinical research, all focused on the individual patient. Our stroke program was the first in Orange County named as a certified comprehensive stroke center, and our brain tumor program is the largest in Orange County and among the top volume programs in the Western United States. Hiccup Family Neurosciences Institute. Compassionate care, clinical excellence, creative intelligence. To learn more, call 949-516-9075 or visit hogue.org forward slash neuroinstitute. If the woman you love, your mom, wife, daughter, sister, partner, or friend is on a downward spiral from substance abuse and doesn't know where to turn, New Directions for Women can help. It's a Costa Mesa-based addiction treatment facility that has the answer. Since 1977, New Directions for Women has helped more than 5,000 women change their lives, returning them to sobriety, healthy living, restoring love and hope, and providing dignity for them and for their families. Don't waste another day. The woman you love needs your help now. Call New Directions. The number is 888-786-0509. Once again, call 888-786-0509 or visit them at www.newdirectionsforwomen.org. That's New Directions for Women. They know recovery. If you're feeling like you need a little bit of company, you met me at the perfect time. You want me, I want you, baby. My sugar boo, I'm levitating. The Milky Way, we're relegated. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 we are back. Everybody, it's Bruce Cook, The Conversation, live tonight on Angels Radio, AM 830, Orange County, Los Angeles, Inland Empire. So good to have you listening tonight. I know it's a busy night in America, but there's always alternatives. Anyway, we're with Kamal Gupta. We are talking about money, the stock market. We're talking about gambling. We're talking about individuals following their dreams. We're talking about the American dream we have so much. We're talking about... And uh, when we went to commercial, uh, if you've been listening, I hope you have for the whole time, um, our author, Kamal Gupta, play it right, in his book at the very beginning, he had, has lists three things that he will never do. He will never work on Wall Street, he will never live in New York City, and he will never marry a non-Indian. So far, we've proven the first two wrong. He is an enormous success on Wall Street. He lives in New York, now not in the city, but elsewhere in New York. Let's find out about his personal life. Kamal, how did you meet your wife? And somehow tied into this is the fact that I think you were a little embarrassed about being called a professional gambler and meeting people socially. Um. Maybe initially I was, uh, because there was just so much resistance to my playing the game. 
from virtually everyone. But I think over time, people came around and they tried to learn the game themselves with, you know, as I describe in the book, somewhat disastrous consequences. Um, but, you know, the, the last 25 to 27 years of my life, which is 1995 onwards, which starts with my leaving the industry, you know, my personal and private I mean, personal and professional lives are completely intertwined from that point onwards. I met my wife on the first day uh, when I started working at Lehman Brothers. Just coincidentally, she was the roommate of a friend to someone I had met in Minneapolis in college. And, you know, my, the mutual friend just sort of introduced us as friends and, um, you know, one thing led to another. So we were getting married in the spring of 1995, which obviously, spoiler alert, I do break the third vow as well. And which is why I sort of list the three vows at the beginning of the book, because I'm pretty sure the readers will figure out these vows are never going to stand. <laughs> so, I mean, but the thing is, it's, it, you know, I was probably 23 or 24 when I made these vows. And, you know, over the years, I sort of I mean, I adapted, and, you know, gambling and Wall Street, and I think life itself is all about adapting to changing circumstances. And I, and I met my wife, and um, um, I was in this, in fall of 1994, um, I was in this near plane crash where, you know, an airplane that I'm in catches fire mid-flight, and the whole cabin is filled with smoke. And I didn't think I was going to make it out of uh, uh, the situation alive, but I did. Um, and I sort of realized what went through my head in those few minutes when I thought that the chances of survival were pretty low. Uh, and I realized that um, I'm going to have to propose. And that's what I did in, in a fairly clumsy fashion, which is described in the book. Uh, but then we do get married in, in 1995, and I sort of used getting married as an excuse for taking three and a half months off from Lehman Brothers because I couldn't really say that, you know, I was really, to put it mildly, somewhat disgusted with the business and the culture of the industry. So I used, you know, getting married as an excuse for taking three and a half months off, which was unheard of because, you know, people get married all the time on Wall Street. No one takes more than two weeks off. But I did. And those were three and a half pivotal months in my life. In what way? In the sense that, I'm sorry? In what way? What was what was so important about that, and how did it change? Well, two things. Well, two things happened. I mean, I I get married, which is uh, an important life, an important event in anyone's life, and more importantly, the three and a half months that I spent away from the industry gave me perspective, and I sort of figured out what I wanted to do in this business, and it was not particularly different from what I'd done with the casinos, which is to beat the house over and over and over. So I decided to return to Wall Street with a single goal in mind. I was going to develop a methodology for beating the mortgage market or die trying. I mean, that was it. And, I, and, and now that I had a purpose in life to go back to Wall Street, um, I went back and I spent the next five years devising a method. And then after that, now it's 1999, and like four and a half years. So it's like uh, 1999, I start managing money for hedge funds. And then um, I eventually end up compiling. It's impossible to know this for sure, but I strongly suspect that it might be the finest track record, long-term track record earned by an individual 
in hedge fund history. Wasn't it something like 103 straight months? Is that correct? I had 100. So I, I, de- I developed this methodology, basically starting from 93 all the way till late 99. And then I'm fairly confident that um, I think I have a method. Like, it's, when I was playing blackjack, I could just pick up Ken Houston's million-dollar blackjack and learn how to count cards. It's, I, didn't have to, I just had to make sure that the odds were in my favor, which you know, doesn't take a lot of effort because the math is fairly you know, is explained in a lot of books. But when it comes to financial markets, there are no books to read. And you also, one- you also uh, I want to I get back into, into how you, you tackled what was going on in the subprime mortgage world um, and how, how your experience led you to see what so many experts did not see. Um, and go, let me, yeah. you talk, let me, let me yeah, turn this it happens, over to you. This happens in 2004. So I, in late 99, I started working for the largest of Swiss banks, you know, managing money for them. And in late 2004, and this is something no one knew at the time, you know, except my wife and a handful of close friends. Um, I became convinced that the firm was a ticking time bomb. And because of two products that I didn't know much about at the time, but then I spent some time studying, CDOs and subprime mortgages. And uh, by fall of 2004, uh, as I describe in the book, I was convinced that the largest of Swiss banks was nothing more than a house of cards and that I needed to flee the Titanic are we, any life for possible. Are we going to compromise you to say UBS? Yeah, I mean, it's it, 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 the book. The company is named in the book, so it is UBS. So, um, and it's you know, if you go on my LinkedIn page, you can see where I worked from '99 to '05. So, uh, but the thing about my time at UBS was that I had 63 consecutive months um, off profit with zero months of loss, and that you know, after UBS, I went to a British hedge fund, which was like the polar opposite in terms of risk profile um, than UBS. No exposure to subprime, no exposure to CDOs. And I had another 40 months where I didn't lose money. So I, in total, I had 103 consecutive uh, months of profit with zero months of losses, which I think is a feat that is unheard of. Um, at least I haven't heard of it anywhere else. And um, the only event that causes my streak to end is the financial crisis. So the first losing month that I have uh, is September of 2008. And the only reason... September 15th was the day. Exactly. That was the day. And on September 12th, I was in very good shape, Um, you know, as far as the month was looking. But September 15th, it obviously all goes haywire. And Lehman was my prime broker, which in simple terms means that Lehman houses own, you know, houses all your securities. So if Lehman has filed for bankruptcy, you don't really have access to your positions. And you don't know which of your bonds, you know, do you still own, if any. And, I mean, transacting on them is out of the question. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think everybody lost just about everything. Right. So I I lose. I mean, I I lose a fair amount of money in in neutralizing my exposure. Um, And it it is my first negative month, but it's negative by a very small amount. You know, I mean, less than one-tenth of a percent. But a negative number is a negative number. So, um, you know, the the streak is over, which, you know, the thing about streaks is that 
even though I had a 103-month-long streak, I actually don't believe in streaks. I didn't believe them in, in casinos, and I don't believe them on Wall Street, because streaks are only apparent in hindsight. You can only look back and say, oh, I had that streak. Interesting when point. You're, when you're in it, you have no way of knowing. The next hand could end the streak, or it could start you know, a, a long losing or a long winning streak. All you can do hand after hand or month after month, as I did on Wall Street, is to play the odds the way they're dealt and, and play the hand the best, to the best of your ability. Let's stop, let's stop there. Let's stop there for a second. We have to take our third break, Kamal. Okay. And when we come back in our last quarter hour, let's move forward to right now and let's talk about Wall Street today and uh, what your opinions are about the state of the market. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook. It's the Bruce Cook Conversation. Tonight is our, our special guest, Kamal Gupta, author of Play It Right. We will be right back. As part of the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, Hoag's Neurospine Program offers innovative methods to reduce pain, inflammation, and improve mobility safely and effectively, often without surgery. Should you need surgery, Hoag is a leader with minimally invasive techniques, 3D imaging, and robotics to restore your golf swing or your swing dance. Many of our patients go home in just a few hours, walking the very next day. Call our dedicated nurse navigator at 949-537-2931 for an evaluation or visit hoag.org forward slash spine and we are back i'm bruce cook the bruce cook conversation kamal we selected this uh, song just for you anyway as we finish our time together, I want to talk about the market today. It seems so, as I said in the very beginning intro, so volatile and so different from the market of the past. The philosophy, the philosophy always was the long haul, not the short term. And, and you talk about that extensively in your book. In fact, I'll, I'll quote something. You say short-term irrationality creates opportunities and long-term <clears throat> rationality creates profit. Can you address what's going on today a little bit for us, please? You know, it's, it's difficult for me to really understand what's going on, but I can give you my take on the matter. I mean, it's very different from how I've been used to operating, which is like you just said. Short-term irrationality creates opportunities, which means you take the other side of those irrationality, irrational moves in the market. And long-term rationality, when the market comes to its senses, uh, which is the same as the true odds being realized, um, you know, that's what creates profits. So in times of stress, you know, you, you go against what the grain. But the problem with the market these days is there are a few dominant forces which are causing increased volatility in the marketplace. One obviously has a lot to do with expectations of the Fed, what the Fed may do with, with respect to interest rates. And Fed traditionally has been very supportive of the stock market. I mean, anytime the stock market swoons, there is, you know, an impending, oftentimes even intra-meeting interest rate cut. Uh, but now with the economy, you know, booming and inflation running north of 7%, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the Fed 
to increase interest rates, and they're widely expected to raise interest rates several times over the next few um, months and maybe the next year or two. But the way interest rates are pricing it in is that the Fed will raise rates, but only so much. It's not anything, even though inflation is like the 1980s almost, the Fed actions will not be anything close to that, and that maybe the Fed will raise rates to two, maybe 3%, and then that will be it. Um, and then there is this proliferation of, um, you know, there's a lot of high-frequency trading that happens in the marketplace these days. So more and more with every passing day, human beings are being replaced by computers. And computers can trade stocks or bonds or any financial instrument a lot faster than uh, human beings can. And um, once you program a computer to do a certain thing, it can literally do it in like milliseconds, if not even less time. And oftentimes, these computers, you know, all come to the same conclusion, and you have very wild swings. And there was a flash crash, you know, a few years ago, which was also partly the result of this phenomenon. So I think it's a combination of, um, and uh, it's strange to bring this facet into it, but you may surprise, it may surprise you to hear this, but I believe income inequality in America has played a great deal of role in this. In what way? As, as way? the rich get richer, and today the top 1% owns roughly, own roughly 33% of wealth in America, and the bottom 50% own a paltry 2%. And as the rich get richer, they need a place to park their money. To, they need to invest in financial assets. Um, and the assets can be stocks, bonds, or they can give money to hedge funds. And hedge funds essentially you know, borrow money to, to place large bets in the stocks and, stock and bond markets. So the more money that flows to hedge funds, um, which has been the case over the last few years, um, the more volatile the markets will tend to be because there is just more trading activity going on. So the combination of money going to hedge funds, the Federal Reserve's you know, actions, have contributed to the current state of affairs. What about the, the concept of the flood of day traders that have never been in the market like they are today. Is that any impact whatsoever? I mean, if you're talking about day traders like individuals, I yes. mean, yes, they matter, but I think they're dwarfed by the professional investors. But weren't computers, even 20 years ago, um, a, a major factor because of institutional trading, which has been a, uh, a factor that has swayed the market? Sure, they were a factor. I mean, but computers every year get faster and faster and more sophisticated. So what's to and stop individuals f with the wherewithal to become technologically adept with their own individual computers, or is, am I being crazy? I don't think, I mean, in most of these transactions, the human being is not involved because the human would be just too slow for to react to the market moves. But, but there is still room for human involvement in these markets, I mean, uh, is there room? Me, is there room for a, another Kamal Gupta to come into the into the fore as a twenty-five-year-old like you did, and do what you've done? Is that a possibility anymore? Is that American dream still available? I mean, I think it is. I think well, American dream. My American dream is very unusual. I mean, not a lot of people come. To America for grad school and end up in Las Vegas and then on Wall Street. I would say you're the only. I say you're yeah. the only one. <laughs> so <laughs> I say um, you're it. But I do believe the American dream is alive, but it is kind of on life support in the sense that 
the opportunities that were available to me when I came here in the mid-80s, I don't think the landscape is that generous anymore. I don't think you can get hired on Wall Street as a gambler. I mean, maybe you can, but I haven't seen anyone else getting hired the way I was. Um, and for the vast swaths of middle America, uh, I mean, a combination of outsourcing, which has contributed to inequality, um, has really, you know, affected the middle class and, uh, you know, reduced upward mobility. What do country. your What do your family and friends that are still in India, looking at what's happening in America, say to you about the change? I think it's universally acknowledged that the change has not been for good. Um, by, I mean, I think um, I think even vast majority of Americans would think that we're headed in the wrong direction. And, and I think that feeling stretches across party lines, um, you know, from the coast to the middle of the country, from Republicans to Democrats to north to south. I think there is a broad agreement on something is wrong. And, you know, I think, I mean, in a nutshell, I think what is wrong is the tremendous control that corporations have over the economy and the political process. Well, I'm going to have to have you come back and talk about the ethics of corporations and and what you just described with the political process. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, I thank you so much, Kamal Gupta. Let me plug your book for you. Play it right, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Kamal, how do we get it? Uh, it's available everywhere. The book will be released in uh, North America and the U.K. on May 10th, but you can pre-order it um, you know, wherever books are sold. Uh, and I have a wonderful publisher in Toronto called ECW Press. Um, they have been nothing but fantastic throughout the whole process. And the book also is being published in India by Bloomsbury Press of Harry Potter fame. And in India, it will be published um, on July 18th. So it will be available by the time July rolls around in the entire English-speaking world. Well, that's wonderful. Listen, I got to close with one quick thing that I re that really struck me in the book it has nothing to do with all that we're talking about about gloom and doom. The fact that you watched your mom as a kid buying groceries in the food in the fruit markets and the and the vegetable markets, and she would negotiate with the vendors, and she yes. would she would get that extra one percent less or whatever it was, and that that really impressed you and changed certainly part of your course of your life. Well, that's that's how I learned the most important lesson, you know, about negotiating is that you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. Perfect way to and end. Some, Perfect yeah. way to end. You get what you negotiate. I have to stop. I wish you the best. All the all the best with the book. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Bruce Cook. The conversation has ended for this night. We'll be back again next Sunday at 6. We look forward to you joining us. It is always an honor, my honor. You've been listening to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Hear the Bruce Cook Conversation on Sundays at 6 p.m. Pacific on AM 830 KLAA. And hear the podcasts of every show on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public.